going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we've finished a long series of studies in the Gospel of John, and we're going to begin a series of studies that will take us through the next few months, looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, a very different kind of book of the Bible than the book of John. I'll just read the first 11 verses of the first chapter. This is God's word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after I've been asked by my, the high school I graduated from, the public high school in my little town in northwestern Pennsylvania, I've been asked to come back and speak at their graduation ceremony this June in a few weeks, a couple weeks. And I've really been puzzling over what to say. The person who asked me said, you know what, we know you're a preacher. You have freedom within certain limits to, to speak your mind. Just remember, it's not a sermon. Not preaching to your church. Well, that is very difficult. It's a strange context for me to think about talking about the truth. And I think back on how many graduation speeches I've listened to over the years, and I think, how can I speak to graduating seniors about their future? How can I inspire them about their goals, about their plans, about the future before them? Realizing that they're going to be all over the spiritual spectrum. I remember the very night of my graduation, a couple of hours before the ceremony, I drove up north of town, up on a hill, to an old fire tower. I don't know if you know what a fire tower is, but uh, I grew up in the Allegheny National Forest, and they have several fire towers there. They're basically like metal towers, and on the top there's a little hut. And that's where the forest rangers would go up to look out over the forest and they could see for miles and miles and see if there's any forest fires. One of the purposes of them. Well, they had one of those just north of my town and we used to go up there and hang out often and horse around, you know, with friends. It was kind of a hangout place for us at times. I really grew up out in the country. Instead of sympathy, that was our hangout place, the fire tower. But 
I went up there by myself the night of my graduation, and I climbed to the top of it, and I'm looking out as far as the eye could see, and I'm contemplating my future, looking at the things to come. I was about to go off to college and be independent from my parents for the first time. I thought about getting married, about finding a job, building a career, having kids. It was all very scary and exciting at the same time. A lot of fear of the unknown, but also excitement about it as I stood there looking out across the forest. Now here I am. Matter of fact, it's kind of ironic that two days after I speak to my former high school about those, to those graduating seniors, I'm going to sit and watch my own youngest son, youngest of five, walk up and receive his diploma where he graduates from high school. And somehow I feel like I need to go back to the fire tower. I need to climb up there again and take another look at my future and say, you know, I've accomplished all those goals I was thinking about all those many years ago. I've finished my education. I've found a wife. I found a job. I found a career. I had a lot of kids. Where do I go from here? What's the future for me? What, 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 what should my goals be? What should I be excited about? What's the meaning and purpose of my life now? Well, instead of visiting the fire tower, what I'm going to do is visit the book of Ecclesiastes for the next few months. And the book of Ecclesiastes is a much better vantage point for viewing reality in the present and reality in the future. No matter what stage of life you're in, this part of God's word is intended to give you perspective. Understand that, that this book is intended to give you perspective on your life, your future, your hope, what is the meaning and purpose for your life, the big picture. And I'll warn you that it's not going to be an easy study. There's nothing easy about the book of Ecclesiastes. There aren't a lot of Sunday school answers here. But I've already found that when you dig, there is profound truth here. There is life-changing truth here. It's something we need no matter what stage of life we're in, is to be able to look at where we're at and where we're going. And what's the purpose of everything around us? Ecclesiastes is actually uh, an English transliteration of a Greek word, not a Hebrew word. Of course, the Old Testament is written almost entirely in Hebrew. But Ecclesiastes, we take from the title of this book as it's found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And so it's, it's a transliteration of an actual Greek word. The Hebrew word is Koheleth, Q-O-H-E-L-E-T-H, if you were to translate it into English, Koheleth. And it's not the name of a person, like many Bible books are given the name of a person. This is, the, this is actually a title, and it means teacher. Here the ESV translates it preacher. It's actually literally the word comes from to assemble. So it's someone who assembles, and the thought is that it's somebody who assembles people. Like you're assembled here to hear a preacher. But Actually, the setting, I, I tend not to prefer preacher because I think that gives the idea that it's in this kind of setting we tend to think preachers in, in terms of this context. I think it's more generically the word teacher, and I'll explain why in a moment. In verse 1 and verse 12, you see that, that 
the person speaking, this teacher, Koheleth, is a son of David and king over Israel and Jerusalem. And historically, the church has always believed that Solomon is the author of this book. And there's a lot of good reasons for thinking that Solomon may well have been the author of this book. As Koheleth, or the teacher, talks about the insights that he has, you see that he's someone who has had great wealth, someone who has been blessed with great wisdom, someone who had tried many, many, many wives, and someone who had gone into a period of apostasy, as we know that Solomon did near the end of his life. And so it really does fit, and it's understandable. But it is, there are reasons, I'm not going to get into all the complex reasons why there are doubts more recently about whether Solomon was actually the author, but one of the reasons is that in Proverbs and in Song of Songs, it's actually, those books are actually attributed to Solomon, but Solomon's name doesn't appear in the book of Ecclesiastes. As a matter of fact, he talks about being wiser than all the kings in Jerusalem before him, which is kind of an odd thing for Solomon to say since he was David's son. He, he was the, they were the only two that had been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So there are just a sampling. There are a couple reasons why we're not quite sure that it was Solomon, but I don't think it really matters. Because Koheleth was not, he, I don't think, even if Solomon is the author, I don't think he intends us to think that that's the voice of Solomon. The commentators that I've been most intrigued by as they've looked at this book is that they think that there's actually two voices here. There's the person who speaks at the very beginning, kind of a narrator, so to speak, and the one who actually concludes and brings out the main point of the book in the last six verses. But in the middle, there's this second voice that he calls the preacher, the teacher, Koheleth. And you need to understand who that person is. I'm going to stop calling him Koheleth. You may never hear me call him that again because I can't pronounce it very well if you haven't realized that already. And I don't think preacher is probably the best term. I think teacher is the best term. And since we're in a university community, I'm going to call him Professor Q. And I'm going to continue to call him Professor Q. And Professor Q is the one who speaks through the bulk of the middle of the book. And that, so that's all I'm going to be referring to. But understand that Professor Q does not see things the same way you, the not, you, that you and I do, those of us who have been trained in the scriptures. He doesn't have the full truth. He's a very intelligent, very wise person, except that his knowledge is limited. It's limited to life, as the phrase he will use over and over again, under the sun. Under the sun, under the sun. He says it 29 times in this book, under the sun. And matter of fact, that phrase, interestingly, shows up nowhere else in the Old Testament. It's a unique, unique phrase that Professor Q uses as he gives his perspective on the world. And that phrase defines the boundaries of his worldview. Whatever is true under the sun, it doesn't take anything into consideration that is above the sun, namely a sovereign, providential God. Now, that's not to say that Professor Q is an atheist, because he's not. He refers to God. Probably the best way to understand Professor Q is that he is a deist, because he'll refer to God, he believes God exists, but he, the way he talks through the bulk of this book is that this God that he believes in is not involved in the daily affairs of mankind. It's a distant God. A God who seems to not to care, to not really be involved in life. 
Sounds like kind of the popular American view of God, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a God. Very few people say that there is no God. But the vast majority of the people who say there is a God, doesn't, they don't really believe that he's involved in the details of life. See, this is why you can't necessarily quote Professor Q like you'd quote Jesus. Because Professor Q is operating within that limited worldview. Many things that Professor Q would say, you would read in the book of Proverbs. And you'd say, yes, amen to that. That's absolutely true. But he'll say things that don't fit with the rest of Scripture. Because he's limited his worldview to what's under the sun. I think the best way to understand Professor Q is to compare him to Job's friends. You know, when you read the book of Job, and you read the statements that Job's friends make, you understand that they have a limited worldview. They're not seeing truth accurately. So you don't quote Job's friends without taking into consideration that they say some true things and some things that aren't true because their worldview or their religious views are not right. Maybe a, a more recent uh, analogy to that would be Screwtape's Letters, the great book that C.S. Lewis wrote. When you read Screwtape's Letters, you read them kind of upside down, don't you? I mean, his worldview is upside down compared because he's a demon. He's the chief of demons. He's writing to other demons. And so what Screwtape says is true, you actually turn it upside down, and that's what's really true. And you understand that when you're reading. What's kind of the same with Professor Q. Understand that everything he says, it may be true insofar as what's true under the sun, but he does not take into account what's above the sun. One commentator called Ecclesiastes pessimism with a purpose. And it is going to be, at times, a very pessimistic book, pessimistic teaching, because life under the sun is a pretty pessimistic place. But the purpose is to point us to the full truth. Always understand that. The purpose is to point us to the gospel. The purpose is to point us to Christ. I love blues music. It's been a sad week for me. B.B. King is gone. The thrill is gone, as I heard recently. I love blues music. Matter of fact, a lot of the music I listen to, my wife will tell you, she calls it mopey music because it's kind of the minor key stuff, you know, the kind of dwells on the dark sides, the hard sides of life. That's the kind of music I like to listen to. And, and I've actually, people have challenged me and I've challenged myself. Is it proper for a Christian to listen to music that has that perspective? Well, I think it is, if you use it carefully, in the same way that Ecclesiastes is really helpful because dwelling on the reality of life under the sun will give you a hunger for life above the sun. Dwelling on and, and not avoiding, not denying, not distracting yourself from the reality of what the world is like under the sun gives you a deep desire to seek things above like the scriptures tell us to. And I think that's the purpose of Ecclesiastes. As Professor Q introduces us to his perspective, his worldview under the sun, he describes it in three ways. The first way he describes it is that it is vanity or meaningless. Vanity. Vanity of vanities, verse 2 says. All is vanity. First of all, why does he say it that way? Vanity of vanities. Well, in Hebrew, if you want to intensify something... You take the singular ver version or, uh, you know, tense of that verb and, and, you, and you put it, uh, well, you take the, the singular 
uh, version of it, you put it together with the plural version of it, vanity of vanities, and you get super vanity. Complete vanity. Overwhelming vanity. That's the idea. Holy of holies. What does that mean? Well, it means the most holy place. The superlative, the ultimate. Vanity of vanities. Or as I would translate it, meaninglessnesses, meaninglessnesses of meaninglessness is really what he's saying. Now, I had to, I translate that way. We tend to think, we hear vanity, we think of vain. Like, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. That, that kind of vanity. Um, but it's the second the way we don't use that word nearly as often is in vain. You think of the phrase in vain. I searched for my keys all morning in vain. In other words, you worked really hard and you had nothing to show for it. It's meaningless, it's purposeless, it's empty. The root of the word in Hebrew is actually the word that you, it means vapor, it means a breath, a, a puff of air. And that's why in English the word tends to be translated as futile or worthless, or absurd, empty, meaningless. That's what the word means. I like one commentator's take on it. He translated it this way. He said, soap bubble of soap bubbles. All is soap bubbles. I like the visual image of that, because isn't that what the things of this world are like under the sun? If there is nothing beyond the sun, isn't that what all the beautiful things of this world are? These soap bubbles, when they grow big and they, you know, they float through the air, they're mesmerizing, they're iridescent, they're beautiful, they're, but poof, and they're gone. And there's nothing there. Nothing remains. That's what the things of this world are under the sun. All is completely meaningless. He emphasizes the word all. Under the sun, nothing has meaning or purpose. That's the worldview of Professor Q. Secondly, he describes life under the sun as cyclical, frustratingly cyclical. In verse 4, it says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. People are born, people live, people die, and then more people are born, and they live, and they die, and the cycle repeats over and over and over ad nauseum. But the earth just goes on unchanged. The earth, in Professor Q's view, the earth is kind of like Shakespeare's plays. You get new actors all the time, but the play remains the same over and over and over again. In verses 5, 6, and 7, Professor Q looks at the earth itself. That's what humanity is like, but look at the earth itself. Even this monotony, this repeating cycles, you see it everywhere, even in creation. The sun, he says, rises and goes down every day. And then he goes on to say it hastens to the place it rises. In the original Hebrew, the word there is pants. And so you get the idea that, like the psalmist says, the the sun runs its course across the sky and it gets to the other horizon and then it runs around the other side of the earth and it's panting and it gets back to the beginning just to start the whole cycle again. And so you you get the sense that the sun is just frustrated by the repetition, the cycle of life. Then he goes on to describe the wind. One thing that amazes me is how Professor Q has an amazingly modern understanding of cosmology, of of meteorology. He talks about the wind cycling. I don't know how he could have known, you know, as we know, 
in modern science, how the winds around the world cycle and blow and blow again and they cycle back and he understood that and he sees that as frustrating. The rivers, he says they flow and they flow and they flow and yet the seas never get full. Can you imagine how frustrating that must be for the rivers? They keep pumping water into the seas and the seas never get full. And again, I don't know if Professor Q understood, you know, water vapor, evaporation, and, you know, condensation, and, and the whole water cycle, but he seems to indicate it here. It's a cycle. It just keeps repeating. But he's not marveling at that. The other, you know, in the Psalms, they marvel at the cycles of, of creation. But Professor Q is frustrated by it. He says, under the sun, in verse 8, under the sun, all things are full of weariness. The world is full of mindless repetition. No progress, no plan, no purpose. According to Professor Q, life is like riding a big Ferris wheel. It just keeps going around and around, and you never get anywhere. You know what it's like. You wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you've got to start the whole process over again. You've got to brush your teeth again. You've got to shave again. You've got to take a shower again. You've got to get dressed again. You've got to make yourself breakfast again. You've got to put the dog out again. You've got to, you know, and then the rest of the day, it doesn't change. You've got to change the same diapers again and again. You've got to pick up the same clothes and wash the same clothes. The same toys keep appearing in the middle of the living room over and over again. The grass keeps growing and growing so fast. <laughs> and every morning when you go back, I don't know why, you know, I have a slightly different rhythm to my work than you do. The, 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 the ultimate of my work is Sunday morning. It, it's where all my week is built towards a crescendo of being able to share God's word with you on Sunday morning. And then after we fellowship, I go home and I collapse and I stay collapsed until Tuesday morning. And then Tuesday morning, I go in, and I sit down at my desk, and it's all gone. And I have to start it all over again, the whole process. And I know your job is like that, too, probably on Monday morning instead of Tuesday morning. It all starts again. We feel like the proverbial hamster in the wheel or the dog chasing his tail. And we live in dissatisfaction. Look at the phrase. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. And I think there he's referring to this tendency we have to distract ourselves from the monotony and the boredom and the repetition. We distract ourselves. We need something new to look at. We need something new to listen to. For me, it's music. I need new music because I'm bored. And so I distract myself by trying to find new music, something new and exciting. Or maybe it's a new movie, some, some new movie you haven't seen before. So you keep looking for a new movie over and over again to distract yourself from the boredom, the monotony. Or maybe it's a new vacation place, a new place you've never traveled to before. Maybe a new hobby, something to put something new and exciting in your life because you're bored with the monotony. And all those things are good, but they can be just distractions. And the bottom line is if you live life as though the only reality is is what's under the sun, you're just distracting yourself from this harsh, meaningless, cyclical lifestyle. In verse 9, Professor Q gives us a very depressing view of history. He says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. Very depressing view of history, isn't it? That history is just a big cycle. It keeps repeating over and over again. 
as I was looking into this verse, I was reminded of the old Star Trek. Now, when I say Star Trek, there was a Star Trek of like the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, much more cynical later. But I'm talking about the first Star Trek back in the 60s, where extremely optimistic about man's capabilities. You know the line, to boldly go where no man has gone before. The idea is that mankind is evolving, and we're getting better and better and smarter. And as knowledge increases and as technology increases and as we develop and we evolve, we're going to reach a day where, you know, the old federation, it was a place of prosperity and peace. Man had finally overcome all his problems. That was the, that was the view of reality. That was the view of mankind that they had back then. The World War II generation was called the greatest generation. And it was in many ways. But you hear Professor Q's mindset there. My generation is better than the earlier generations. And then the boomer generation came along and said, we're better than the greatest generation. Then Generation X came along and said, we're better than those generations. And then the millennials came along and they say, we're better than all those generations. And Professor Q says, no. It's all the same. Everything just keeps repeating. It's not getting better. I came across this quote this week. Listen to this quote. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, and they show disrespect for their elders. Do you know who wrote that? Socrates. 400 BC. History is cyclical. Generations come, generations go, and nothing changes. Verse 10 Professor Q says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? You see, that's what advertisers keep trying to sell us. They keep trying to tell us, new and improved, new and improved, new and improved. Keep looking, keep searching here under the sun. You'll find what will satisfy you. Well, it is true. I mean, there have been amazing advances. Our, the, the last couple of generations have seen technological advances like no generation could have even dreamed of. Think about what difference airplanes have made in life and and TV and internet and cell phones and smartphones. Think of how this has changed life, but has it really? Haven't those things just kind of covered over real life? Aren't they kind of just superficial distractions from real life? Real life hasn't changed. Human nature hasn't changed. Matter of fact, I think we have a unique temptation in our day that technology gives us an illusion of newness, an illusion of change. That's why we're addicted to our smartphones. That's why we have to check Facebook dozens of times a day. That's why we have to check email dozens of times a day, because we want something new. I mean, they've talked about the fact that it's actually physiologically addicting to surf the Internet because you get that rush, that little mental rush chemical rush from checking out a new web page. And it's all a distraction from the fact that what Professor, Professor Q says is in, within his worldview is really true. Nothing changes. And finally, Professor Q says that not only is life under the sun meaningless, not only is it frustratingly cyclical, but it's ultimately forgettable. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things. What a sad statement. There is no remembrance of former things. 
As the cycles of nature and history repeat, our generations are forgotten. Our lives are like a cup of water that you take out of the ocean. Once you take it out and it's gone, you don't notice that it's gone. You know, death is actually a major theme in Ecclesiastes. We, we, we always try to avoid death. We, we put death off in some, you know, clean, quiet, white room somewhere where we don't have to look at it, don't have to deal with it. But death in every other generation was very much a part of life. Ecclesiastes looks death right in the face. And Professor Q deals with death, and it's death that ultimately makes all of life meaningless to Professor Q. Let me give you an example of his view of death over in chapter 3, verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity, all is meaningless. You know, if, you, if your worldview can be described as just seeing things as they exist under the sun, then the best you can hope for in life, to give any meaning and purpose to your life, is to be remembered. That's your ultimate hope, is to be remembered. Isn't that how people in the world out there, in the culture, they talk about death? Well, he's not really dead as long as we remember him. And if that's your hope for significance and meaningfulness to your life, it's like a soap bubble. The most famous among us might get a building named after us. But you students walk around on the campus of Penn State every day. You see names on buildings all over the place. How many of those people do you know anything about? If that's your hope, only a few will get their name on a building or a bridge or get some discovery named after you, some star up there in the sky named after you. But what a vain hope. What an empty hope. For most of us, the only people that are going to remember us after we die are our close family and our close friends. And you know what? Pretty soon they're going to die too. So if remembering is your great hope, and that's the only hope. Professor Q looks at life under the sun and he says, that's the only hope you have left, and so life is meaningless. Life under the sun without God's intimate involvement is vanity. It's meaningless. It's empty like a soap bubble. Have I depressed you sufficiently yet? (laughs) You see, all of that is absolutely true because it's life under the curse. It's life in a fallen world. But the gospel, the good news is, is that light has come into that world. And that light is the Son of God. And so Professor Q portrays for us this bleak, dark, awful picture of life under the sun, but the rest of Scripture puts it in context to that life under the risen Son of God. And what a gloriously different picture it is. That the eternal God, the creator of all the universe, not only does he know what's going on under the sun, not only is he involved in what's going on under, the, on under the sun, but he has actually put himself under the sun. He has come and dwelt in our midst. He's become one of us and lived a life of perfection among us and then went to the cross and died for our sins. And the ultimate purpose of him dying for our sins was not just to give us forgiveness, as great as that is, 
but was to do away with meaninglessness in the entire universe because one day he'll restore all things to perfection where everything will have meaning and purpose again. You know, it's interesting to me that the New Testament doesn't anywhere quote the book of Ecclesiastes, but that dark picture of Professor Q is there in the background everywhere. And the best parallel passage to the book of Ecclesiastes is in Romans 8. The whole chapter of Romans 8 is the context in which you're to understand the whole book of Ecclesiastes. So let me read just beginning in verse 18 to you. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, listen to this, for the creation was subjected to futility meaninglessness, vanity. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Hear what he's saying? God put the world under that state of futility so that we would look ultimately to Christ for hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's the life of meaning and purpose. Waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies and our souls when Christ will come again. That word futility, that the creation was subjected to futility, it's the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that's used for vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the same word. God has a purpose for it. It's not the end of the story. God has a purpose for the futility. It's to point us to Christ. Romans 8 gives us the linear view of history. Praise God that history is linear. That it has a beginning and that it points to a glorious end. That life isn't just a bunch of cycles. But God is carrying out his covenant. It's interesting to me, in the whole book of Ecclesiastes, nowhere does Professor Q call God Yahweh. He always refers to him in a more generic term for God. Because Yahweh, if you refer to him as Yahweh, that's the God of the plan. That's the God of the covenant. That's the God who's working all things together for our good. Because Romans 8 goes on to say, a few verses later in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has a plan. And God has been intimately involved in all things, even the, the falling of a sparrow from the sky. God is intimately involved in that under the sun. Verse 3, Professor Q asks the question, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's, he's asking that question in light of Genesis 3, that the result of sin is toil. What does man gain from all his toil under the sun? Doesn't that sound like the same question Jesus asked much later? When Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? 
you see the contrast between the two questions? Jesus is taking the whole big picture into account. When Jesus told a story about the rich man who was so prosperous that he tore down his smaller barns and built bigger barns so that he could eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy life, Jesus didn't tell that story to condemn the rich man for being rich. He didn't even tell that story to condemn the rich man for wanting to eat, drink, and be merry. He told that story to condemn the rich man for not looking above the sun, for not taking God into account. Because, as Jesus tells it, the response of God is, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? His fatal error was not taking God into account, not looking above the sun. As I continue to puzzle about what to say to these graduating seniors in a couple of weeks at this public school, how do I say this? How do I strain out all the Christianese and all the unnecessarily offensive language I might use, get rid of all my preacherisms, and how do I talk to them about their future that can point them to real hope? Because all the other graduation speeches they're going to hear are about hope in family, hope in career, hope and accomplishments, all under the sun. I will not be being faithful to my God if I don't in some way point them above the sun, whatever the consequences to that might be. I need to point them, even if I'm just planting seeds, I need to point them to the risen Son of God who reigns at the right hand of God in heaven, who is King over King, King of kings and King over all. I need to point to him because that's where they're going to find meaning and purpose in life. Let me close with just a few words, just a few quotes from 1 Corinthians 15. You know what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. It's all about the resurrection. Professor Q is all hung up about death and how death makes life meaningless. Well, the gospel is the exact opposite. It's how the resurrection gives all meaning to life. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. Let me read to you some of it. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, worthless, vanity, soap bubbles, and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Professor Q is right and what's under the sun is all there is, then we who claim to follow Christ are most to be pitied in the world. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, the chapter ends, therefore, this is the point of it all. Listen to this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our worldviews will be transformed, changed, heightened as we explore the teachings of Ecclesiastes over the coming months. Lord, may we not only understand better what it means that Christ is risen from the dead and reigning on high, but may we also know how to communicate the essential truths of our faith to a world that only acknowledges what is under the sun. Give us discernment, give us wisdom, give us the ability to apply your word, give us the ability to live by your word, to live as though Christ is on the throne, submitting to his authority, 
living for his glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.